Well, I don't know why you're here. Um, I imagine different ones of you are here for different reasons. Of course, some of you are covenant members of this church. Others of you perhaps are here at the invitation of a neighbor or a friend, maybe something you saw online. But whatever the occasion that prompted you to come here, we want you to know that we are so glad you're here. If you're in that category of, of someone who may typically not come to church. Perhaps there was a season in your life when you were a regular churchgoer. Maybe you're not as much anymore. Uh, Maybe the pandemic has kind of created a real uh, uh, sense of inertia when it comes to um, trying to get up and get out the door and get your body in a a church service. Whatever the reason is that you're here, uh, we, we... we don't want in any way, even if you're not a typical church attender, we don't want in any way shame you or scold you. Some churches on Easter or Christmas, they'll kind of take shots at those who only come to church on Easter and, and Christmas. You know, how dare you get your act together, get serious. Where are you the rest of the year? But we just want to say we're really grateful you're here with us today. You didn't have to be. We're honored by your presence Um, And I just want to, before we kind of dive into the message, I just want to give you, if you're visiting with us, uh, one encouragement and one challenge. The encouragement is that your presence here, I want to suggest to you, is evidence that God loves you. Now, even if you aren't even totally sure what you think of God, if you even believe God exists, I I want you to know that, that we are convinced that nothing in his universe is accidental. Your presence here is because he has choreographed events such that you could be a thousand other places this morning, but you're not. You're here. This isn't an accident. It's an appointment. He loves you. He loves you enough to bring you here. The challenge I want to offer you is simple. I just want to challenge you, since you're already here, might as well make the most of it, to engage with this sermon. I don't know if a sermon is something that that you've heard, uh, you know, before, or maybe, again, you haven't in a couple of years, but I want to encourage you that even if you struggle to believe, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to kind of lean in and lock in. Shoot up a prayer to the Lord. Ask him to make your heart soft and curious and open to the word of God. If you've been ignoring God, if you've been avoiding God, yawning at God, my challenge is just Give your indifference and your apathy a rest just this morning. And don't leave. Just resolve that in the next few moments together that, that you're not just going to, uh, you're not just going to, you know, make it through, but that you're going to do business with God and you're not just going to leave thinking, oh, well, got that over with, uh, paid my dues, got some religious goods and services, hope God is happy. No, lean in and listen as if the God who created you and loves you has an appointment with you today. So please take a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, again, if you don't have a Bible, you can 
get one on the back table. And if you grabbed one of those when you came in, you can find Mark chapter 2 on page 683 of the Bibles we provided. Page 683. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but it's worth knowing that it is the most influential and best-selling book in human history. It's not even close, actually. The, the Bible has provoked a unique level of, uh, of reaction among those who have engaged its contents. It's not a tame book, in other words. Christians believe that the Bible is the very words of God, living and active, penetrating and transforming. No book has been responded to like this. The Bible has been banned, burned, smuggled, fought for, lived for, and died for. There is no book like the Bible. It's actually a library of books, 66 of them, written by over 40 authors over the course of over 1,500 years, over 10 civilizations on three continents in three languages, and yet, despite all of that breathtaking diversity, there is one unified message of redemption from beginning to end. Here at RCBC, we are journeying our way through one of those 66 books, The Gospel According to Mark. Perhaps you've heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is actually the earliest of these four biographies of Jesus, and I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, but I'll, I'll say it again. Be, before you dismiss the gospel according to Mark as just kind of religious legend, yeah, maybe there are some grains of historical truth, but of course the Bible got changed over the years and legends crept in, so we can't really know that we're encountering the Jesus of history in the pages of Mark. Well, I want to challenge you to reconsider Historians and sociologists tell us that legends take two, three, or four century, uh, generations at least for legends to develop. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written just 30 to 60 years within the time of Jesus' death. And the letters of Paul, which fill out much of the rest of the New Testament, were as early as 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. In other words, the Gospels were written so close to the events they speak of that they were circulating publicly while eyewitnesses were still alive. You could stop them on the street and say, hey, uh, you were there. You, you saw him. You knew him. Did he get up from the dead? Mark is, is writing here in his gospel primarily to readers in the Roman Empire, and he is reporting history. Reporting history with a point. If you want a good idea of what Jesus's mission was on earth, this story we're going to look at is about as good of a representation as you're going to get. Mark 2 verses 1 to 12, which Carol just read, reveals something about Jesus and it reveals something about us. And those are my two simple points this morning. Christ's shocking claim and your deepest need. Christ's shocking claim and your deepest need. First of all, Christ's shocking claim. Look there at verse 1. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
As we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus' birthplace was Bethlehem, his hometown was Nazareth, but the base of operations for his ministry was this fishing village called Capernaum. And word is spreading about all that he can do. The Galilean paparazzi are busy. They are churning out reports and think pieces on what this new rabbi on the scene is able to do. I kind of imagine an ancient version of BuzzFeed, like 12 shocking things the Nazarene said on the Sabbath. So when the crowds hear the report that Jesus is home, probably at Peter's house, they make a beeline for the front door, elbowing their way to get a glimpse, just a glimpse of this miracle worker who has become the talk of the town. Verse 2, so they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. It's interesting that here he's not performing miracles. He's proclaiming the, quote, word. That, that is the gospel of the kingdom that was introduced, remember, back in chapter 1, verse 15. His message is that he has come to break the power of sin and to begin God's personal reign on earth. And that anyone, here's the good news, anyone can get in on this kingdom by simply turning to the king bowing to the king, repenting and believing, turning and trusting him as the long-awaited Messiah. And apparently it's this teaching that is keeping the crowd. And it's this teaching that will be at the heart of his conflicts with the religious leaders in the episodes to come. Well, now the drama begins. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Last week we saw the physical and social condition of a leper. Here we are introduced to a paralytic. We don't know why he's paralyzed. It could have been a disability from birth, could have been a disease or an accident he had suffered, but the man cannot walk. He, he's totally at the mercy of others. There, there was no welfare program in first century Palestine. This guy would have been impoverished, destitute, and utterly vulnerable. It's amazing. This guy even has four friends to willing to do this for him. I mean, you can just imagine one at each corner of the stretcher, right? Just carrying him toward this sea of people crowded around the door. And when they arrive and realize they can't access the door because of the, the crowd of people, you would think they would just say, ah, <laughs> so we tried. Sorry, man, we tried. Uh, it it's an un our unlucky day. Maybe we can just come again. Like, surely this guy will be around tomorrow. But no, <laughs> they are persistent. They, they decide, they actually put their heads together and kind of think creatively. They collaborate. They're like, if we can't go through, we're not going home, we're going up. So they wrap around the house to where there would have been a stairway on the outside of the house leading up to a flat roof. 
Now, flat roofs in the ancient world uh, functioned much much like decks do today. So you could walk on them, you could entertain guests on them. They were constructed out of long wooden beams that were kind of held together by a a mixture of of uh, of sticks and reeds and mortar that were that were um, held together by hardened inches, many inches of hardened clay and mud. Talk about good friends, right? I mean, good night. They, they think creatively. They act persistently to get the paralytic onto the roof, at which point they don't start lounging. Again, there probably would have been some chairs up there, but they don't start lounging. They start digging. Literally, Mark writes, they unroofed the roof. This wasn't just a little cosmetic puncture. This was a demolition job. They had to make the hole big enough to get a human-sized stretcher through it. Just imagine the, the crowd in the house packed shoulder to shoulder. These are the ones that had arrived early to be able to get inside the house to listen to Jesus. And all of a sudden, they can't hear him because of all this noise overhead. And then, just when they thought they couldn't get any more annoyed, debris and dust starts falling onto their heads. They're shocked, they're annoyed, people are probably shouting up, but these men are determined. They, they attach ropes to each corner of the stretcher, they steady themselves, and they let the leper down, or not the leper, the paralytic, down, 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 to the feet of the one they heard can heal. I don't know what you think about drop-in visitors. Probably have different, different opinions in this room. But we can't ever complain about a drop-in visitor again. This is the ultimate drop-in visit. But even as I imagine the growing frustration of the crowd in the house, I can't help but think that Jesus had a little smile on his face. Because he's not just seeing what they are. He's not just seeing dust and debris and commotion in a growing, gaping hole. He sees something else. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. And by there, I think Mark means not just the friends, but the paralytics too. This dogged, determined, desperate trust. When Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, get up and walk. No, that's not what he says. That's what we'd expect him to say. We'd expect him, if he's not going to put them on blast and say, how dare you intrude on the thing I got going here? He says, all right, not I applaud you. We'd expect him just to say, if he's going to be kind, if he's going to be patient about it, we'd expect him just to say, all right, I I applaud you. Be healed. But rather, Mark recounts, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, what we don't expect, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. If I were playing basketball this week with some friends, all right, and 
things got a little heated. There were some hard fouls, and there was an altercation between two guys in particular. We'll call them Mike and Chaz, okay? Uh, <laughs> guests, these are members of our church uh, who were on the platform earlier. And let's say that, that uh, you know, Chaz commits a hard foul, and, and, and Mike, in a fit of rage, he is not happy about this. He totally loses it, and he hauls off and socks Chaz in the face, and, and, there, and there's blood. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible situation, and I sort of intervene, and I look at Chaz, who's all bloodied, and I say, oh my goodness, and I, I, look, at, I look at Mike, and I say, I forgive you. What's Chaz going to be like? He's like, what are you talking about? He didn't punch you. He punched me. You can't forgive him. And Chaz would be right. But do you realize that's kind of like what Jesus is doing here? He's looking at a guy who has been sinning against God his whole life. And Jesus steps in as the offended party. Jesus says, I'm going to grant forgiveness because I am the one you have been offending all these years. No wonder the religious leaders start to freak out. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Even if these scribes, these legal specialists in Jewish law were operating in bad faith, and many of them were, they were asking a good question. They were asking a good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the implied answer, the correct answer is nobody. Prophets, it was said, could heal, but prophets could never directly forgive. Priests could declare someone to be ceremonially clean, but a priest couldn't directly forgive. Only God, according to the Hebrew scriptures, had that authority. The Old Testament is replete with examples of this. I'll just mention one. Isaiah 45, 23. I am he, says the Lord, Yahweh. I am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. The heart of Judaism was the temple in Jerusalem, the place where you would go to be made right with God, where sacrifices would be offered on your behalf. Jesus doesn't say to the paralytic what we would expect a rabbi to say. He doesn't say, son, go to the temple to get your sins forgiven. No. He says, I forgive your sins. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I transcend the temple. I fulfill the entire religious structure and system of Judaism. It all pointed to me. You no, no longer need to go there to a place. You simply need to come here to a person. Even at this early stage of his ministry, Jesus, don't miss it, Jesus is claiming for himself what is the exclusive right and prerogative of God. This is lost. What Jesus is claiming for himself is lost on our Mormon friends, on our Jehovah's Witness friends, on many of our theologically liberal friends, but it was not lost on the enemies of Jesus. 
the people who actually interacted with him, they knew exactly what he was claiming. Needless to say, it was statements like these that got Jesus murdered. Friend, if you respect Jesus, and most people today respect him, but if you're in that category where you respect him, but you don't worship him, maybe you think he's just a good religious teacher, maybe even the best moral teacher that we've ever known in history. If that's your perception of Jesus, then, then I, I want to say with all due respect, you're, you're just not a very good listener to what he actually said and claimed about himself. Jesus spoke and acted as if he enjoyed divine status, not just as a godly man or a godlike man, we might want to reduce him to that, but no, he spoke and acted as if he was the God-man, the creator become a creature, the invisible one become visible, the eternal one invading time, the immortal one taking on flesh to die. The Jesus of the Bible is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. Verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Jesus is not overhearing whispers. This, it doesn't say they were murmuring among themselves. It just says he is reading thoughts like words on a page. I'm reminded of, of Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We know some things at some times. God knows all things at all times. And Jesus in his divine nature does too. His vision penetrates where we cannot see. His vision penetrates to the heart. He sees straight through religious pretense and performance. He sees the real condition of my heart as I preach. And he sees the real condition of your heart as you listen and as you go about your daily life. You can fool a lot of people. I can fool a lot of people, but we cannot fool the God-man. Our hearts this morning, our, mode, our motives this morning are laid bare before his holy eyes. There's a, there's a Jesus of popular imagination. There's a Jesus of political convenience. There's a Jesus of personal preference. But in Mark 2, we're staring at the Jesus of history, the real one. And he is none less than God incarnate. And speaking of vision, the, his ability to see into hearts, these teachers of the law lacked vision. They actually had pretty good vision theologically. You know, the te these teachers of the law, they could have run theological circles around the paralytic, but they missed God standing right in front of them. Why are you thinking these things, Jesus asks. Verse 9, which is easier, 
to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. This is not a trick question, but it doesn't have an immediately obvious answer. I mean, which of the two statements is easier? This has confused me before, but after kind of staring at it for a while this week, I, I think I get it. Jesus is admitting, he's admitting, he's conceding that anyone can just mouth the words, your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say that because it can't be proven false. Forgiveness is an invisible exchange. We, who can know whether or not it actually occurred, but to say, get up, take your mat and walk is harder in a sense because it's subject to immediate verification. It's riskier. So Jesus, with great patience and love, is saying essentially, okay, I'll give you evidence. Because I love you, because I'm patient, because I give you more than you deserve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you evidence. I'm going to say the more risky thing, get up, take your mat, and walk, in order to prove that I can do the more important thing. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the logic here in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. That one sentence there at the beginning of verse 10, I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, is confirming all of these religious leaders' worst fears. Like, that's what they were hoping he didn't mean. That's what they were hoping he wasn't saying. They were thinking to themselves, who does this rabbi think he is? Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus is like, exactly. Not once in the Gospels does Jesus say in a moment like this, oh my goodness, there is clearly been a terrible misunderstanding. You guys are giving me way too much credit. Please let me hold a press conference and clear the air. Let me clarify what I am not claiming as a good Jew. Never says that. Never in the Gospels does Jesus decline worship or correct the record when he's being accused of claiming to be God. That's Christ's shocking claim. And second, and more briefly, your deepest need. Your deepest need. The words of Jesus to the paralytic are shocking, right? They're, they're shocking because they're divine words. If he's not God in the flesh, then it's blasphemy. But they're not just shocking. We have to ask the question, are they also kind of callous? His words to the paralytic? Because we haven't yet addressed the fact that the guy comes to get his legs healed and Jesus seems, at, first, at least at first, to completely ignore that reality. Just ignores it. I mean, the man's lying on a bed of humiliation and shame and desperate physical need. He's probably smelly and dirty and hungry and broke. And Jesus says, hmm, your sins are forgiven. Sounds insensitive. 
But the reason Jesus says this is not because he's callous, not because he's a jerk, not because he doesn't love the guy, but precisely because he does. He loves this paralyzed man enough to address his gravest condition, which is the paralysis, not of his legs, but of his own heart. The cripple's deepest need was not obvious to him or to those looking on. And your deepest need this morning may not be obvious to you or to those around you, but whatever problem in your life you carried here today, thinking was paramount. And by no means do I want to minimize that problem. This, this paralytic's uh, 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 crippledness, his disability, was a serious problem. And yet whatever you came in thinking you're biggest problem was Jesus is eyeing a bigger one. His cardiac diagnosis of you goes deeper than you may assume or, if you're honest, want to believe. Friend, no matter how you're doing, no matter what your situation in life is, your deepest, desperate, most desperate problem is not that situation. No matter how sick you are, your deepest problem is not medical. No matter how strapped for money you are, your deepest problem is not financial. No matter how lonely you are, your deepest problem is not social. No matter how uneducated you are, your deepest problem is not educational. No matter how anxious or depressed you are, your deepest problem is not psychological. No matter how estranged you are or stressed as a parent or spouse, your deepest problem is not familial. Your deepest problem is spiritual, just like the paralytic. His greatest need and yours was forgiveness from God because his greatest problem was sin against God. See, God I said at the beginning, loves you. That's why you're here. He loves you and he created you, not merely to obey him and to serve him, though that's true. He has creator rights over you. But he also made you to enjoy him, to know him, to experience life with him. And yet all of us have made a mad dash in the opposite direction. We have sought to follow our own hearts. We have sought to live for ourselves. We have sought to build our lives around other things. And because of that, we are severed from God. What, what else is, is being severed from the source of life than death? What, what else is being severed from the source of light but darkness? That's what it is to be a human being in a fallen world as someone who has offended the God who made them for himself. All of us, have, the Bible says, have fallen short of the glory of God. We stand condemned because we have had the audacity to climb up like little ants onto his throne and try to topple him off. And yet... God so loved the world that he didn't leave us in our ruin. He didn't leave us in our rebellious state. But he plunged into history 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to solve our deepest problem, 
who lived the life that we have failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die and on the third day rose again so that everyone who turns away from their selfishness and from their rebellion and puts their trust in Jesus will one day rise right along with him. And in the meantime, we can have hope and peace and fulfillment and forgiveness of sin. But let's be honest. When we use this word forgiveness in the year 2022, it lands a little bit different than it would have, I think, even five or ten years ago. Forgiveness has fallen on hard times in our culture. I just mean like the concept, even. Forgiveness. No, I, I'm not going to rail against cancel culture, whether on the right or the left, but cancel culture is an example of what I'm talking about. Nowadays, it's just not fashionable to forgive. We want justice, not forgiveness. We live in a day in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. But we enter the scene wanting one thing, not the other, justice, not forgiveness, but God cares about both. If you're really passionate about justice, then you should meet the Christian God. Contrary to popular belief, he is not just an old grandfather in the sky who's super lenient with evil and just kind of views it as his job to automatically forgive. No. He forgives only on the basis of his satisfied justice. For believers in Jesus, his justice against sin was satisfied on the cross. For those who refuse to believe in Jesus, his justice will be satisfied in hell. But the amazing thing is not that his justice will get satisfied. It's that he will also extend mercy. I don't care how passionate you are about forgiveness. The God of the Bible is also just. And I don't care how passionate you are about justice. The God of the Bible loves to forgive. The cross has freed the mercy of God to be extended. The cross has freed the mercy of God to be extended because the justice of God has been satisfied. Friend, there is only one person in the universe who is authorized to remove this towering barrier between you and God that your sin has created, that my sin has created. Other people are authorized to do all kinds of important things. Inspect restaurants, referee games, perform surgeries, fly planes, argue cases in court, but only one person is authorized to do the most important thing, the thing you most need, and that is to grant forgiveness and reconciliation with your maker. Verse 12, the man got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. As the gospel of Mark unfolds, and we would love for you to join us again next Sunday as we see another one of these clashes, we will see that Jesus is on a collision course with the religious leaders. It begins here in Mark 2 with him being accused of blasphemy, but by the time we reach Mark 14, he's standing trial before the high priest. And what is the charge? 
blasphemy. And so he goes to a cross on a little hill outside of Jerusalem and he hangs in between two criminals in the place of sinners. Little did the crowd in Mark 2 know that they were witnessing in this crowded house the first in a cascade of events, clashes that would eventually lead to his crucifixion. And little did they know if they had eyes to see that they were also witnessing a little preview, a little enacted parable of what would happen three days later. Because this isn't the only time in Mark when we hear someone say, son, get up. That's, in effect, what God says to Jesus. He's crucified, he's buried in a cold, dark, sealed, guarded tomb. But on Sunday, God rolls away the stone and says, my son, get up. This is what we celebrate on Easter. A dead Savior cannot save. We gather here not just to feel better about ourselves, not just to experience some moral uplift, not just to get those religious goods and services to keep God happy. No, we are here to celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty and therefore your life doesn't have to be. And Jesus rose And in rising, he proved that all of the crazy stuff he said was true. I almost imagine this scroll, and on the scroll is written, actually it would be backwards because it's Hebrew, um, (laughs) or maybe Greek, uh, but whatever language God wanted it to be written in, you'd have the scroll, and you'd have written all of these crazy claims Jesus made. One of which was, son, your sins are forgiven. Yes, I did this so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So all of these crazy claims, and then the guy dies at the hand of Roman executioners, and it looks like he was a fraud. It looks like all hope was lost. It looks like that he was nothing he claimed to be, that all of it was just ludicrous. And in raising his son from the dead, it's like God the Father took up the the pen, and on the bottom signed his name under all of those claims. That's what the resurrection is. If, if the cross is the check of redemption being signed, the resurrection is that check clearing. And forgiveness is what? This risen and reigning and soon-to-be returning King Jesus offers you today. There's no trial period. There's no fine print. It can happen in an instant. Mark says, if you noticed, that Jesus forgave the paralytic sins, quote, when he spotted faith. Not later on, not after the paralytic had proven himself. When? Immediately. The moment Jesus sees genuine trust in his mercy, he redeems. The moment he sees genuine trust, He saves, whether in ancient Capernaum or in Richmond, Virginia. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins this morning. Has he forgiven yours? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you delight to forgive those who have offended you, to forgive those who have belittled you, ignored you, trivialized you, yawned at you, been bored with you. Lord, that's us. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to know you and to enjoy you and to experience you forever, but we praise you that you have bridged that chasm, that gap that our sin created, and that you lived, you died, and that you rose, conquering sin and Satan and death, and that one day you will return to make all things brand new. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.